You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.7. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan, and the only thing that matters to a podcaster is the instinct to broadcast. And I'm Nina, new to Stardust memory and have to admit that yes, I did squee. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 729 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Mark GJV, Aaron D, and Chris Falion. You keep us Genki. And an extra special thank you to Slice the Light and Anonymous for supporting us on Kofi. MSB is just us, Nina and Tom, and is entirely listener-supported. If you'd like to hear us reach the Gundam of the 2000s, 2010s, and beyond, become a monthly subscriber today at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. This week, Stardust Memory Episode 7, Aoku Kagayaku Honoede. Its English title is With Shining Blue Fire, and its original English title was Burning Heart. It was released on December 1st, 1991. This is the last episode for which Kase Mitsuko received credit as chief director. Starting in episode 8 and for the rest of the series, Imanishi Takashi will be the sole chief director. Imanishi also wrote this episode's script under the pseudonym Ookuma Asahide, and he is going to write the scripts for most of the remaining episodes. Although by this point a relatively experienced director, Imanishi had only a handful of writing credits to his name. In 89, he wrote the screenplay for an episode of City Hunter, In 1990, he wrote, storyboarded, and directed a 30-minute OVA adaptation of the romance manga Milky Passion, and in early 1991, probably while working on 0083, he co-wrote and directed a 45-minute OVA adaptation of the fantasy manga Capricorn. Akane Kazuki drew the storyboards and was the episode director. The animation director was Kawamoto Toshihiro. While I'm talking about the staff, let me note that the name Kelly Laisner seems like a probable reference to 1985 Sunrise Mecha show Aoki Ryusei SPT Rezuna, or Blue Comet SPT Laisner. Besides the nearly identical names, the show's Japanese name was Rezuna, while Kelly's is Rezuna, and the connection to the color blue, i.e. blue comets and blue flames, 0083 was also something of a reunion for the staff from Leisner. Chief directors Kase and Imanishi had both been episode directors on Leisner. Episode director Watanabe had been a production manager. Scriptwriters Endo and Fuyunori both wrote for Leisner. Animation directors Kawamoto, Nishimura, and Osaka had all been key animators, as had mechanical animation director Yoshida Toru. Urugami Yasuo was sound director, and Matsuda Akihiko handled sound effects on both projects. Ueda Masuo produced both of them. 
Even Takahashi Ryosuke, chief director, writer, and original creator of SBT Lasner, among many other mecha shows, is going to write the scripts for two of 0083's remaining episodes. Also notable, Genda Tesho, voice of Kelly Lasner, and Kobayashi Yuko, voice of Latura, both lent their voices to SPT Lasner, albeit in unlisted and presumably minor roles. I think our animation consultant and friend of the show, Mateo, may have mentioned in a previous guest appearance that Sunrise was divided into different studios, with different studios developing their own projects and staff members tending to work within the same particular studio. The original Mobile Suit Gundam was produced by Studio One, but starting with 1983's combat mecha Zabungle, Tomino himself worked mostly with Studio Two, making Dunbine, Elgheim, Zeta, Double Zeta, Shars Counterattack, and Formula 91 there. Stardust Memory, however, was made in Studio Three, the home of City Hunter, and before that, SPT Lasner. Interestingly, although they never worked on 0083, both Formula 91 screenwriter Ito Tsunehisa and SD Gundam chief director Amino Tetsuro worked on Lasner, meaning that, for the period of 1990 and 1991, the entire animated output of the Gundam franchise had become thoroughly Lasnerified. Now, the recap. Testing for the Unit 1 is proceeding smoothly, and Cole seems to have hit his stride, helping the Anaheim team collect data on the most recent set of upgrades. After the latest session, he runs into Keith, who, appalled by his friend's total lack of game, encourages Cole to finally ask Mina out. She obviously likes him, they've all seen the flirting, and after all, none of them know when they'll have leave again. Honoring his own advice, Keith is there to meet Mora, and the pair leave for their date, arms around each other, leaving Cole poleaxed but thoughtful. At the Anaheim offices, Nina receives some unwelcome news from her section chief. She is being reassigned to R&D and will not be going back aboard the Albion. Though he hesitates to call it an order, the section chief says it's not open for discussion and that he cannot risk his own job to fight the reassignment. Meanwhile, Kelly meets with one of Shima's henchmen to confirm that the mobile armor Valwalo is fully repaired and ready for use. Kelly is surprised to receive a suitcase full of gold bars. Pilots don't typically receive their pay in advance, and is stunned when the henchman laughs in his face. They never intended to bring Kelly along, or to waste a mobile armor on a pilot with one arm. This is payment for the Valwalo, nothing more. Disappointed and struggling to decide what to do, Nina and Kelly sit alone at their respective desks. Nina holding her head in her hands, wishing Cole would help her. Kelly drinking and staring at the video message he received inviting him to join Operation Stardust from his old comrade, Gato. The next day, Cole visits Nina in her office. He stammers and sweats, and in spite of all Nina's encouraging looks, he cannot bring himself to ask her on a date and turns the conversation back to the Gundam. Smacking her hands onto the desk, Nina stands, calls Cole a coward, and storms out. When he follows her, she is already out of view, but one of her friends looks at him critically and asks if mobile suits are the only thing he knows how to handle. Cole comforts himself with the thought that he still has plenty of time to ask Nina out, but that night, on a video call with her father, Nina decides to quit and move home to New Antwerp. 
Shima's ship launches, expecting the Valhalla to join later. And Kelly has come to a decision. While Nina is on her way to the port to catch a flight home, the Valhalla bursts up from the middle of the junkyard, throwing the city into uproar. Kelly's intention is to prove himself and fight alongside his old comrades, but Shima thinks that, having been betrayed by his own side, he is taking the Valhalla to the Federation. Pitiless, she sends the henchman who was supposed to secure the mobile armor out to fight it, alone, in Azaku, to take responsibility for his mistakes. It's over fast. The mobile armor flies straight at the Zaku, and it breaks apart before exploding. The Valhalla is unscathed. A warning shot clips the crater ridge around Von Braun's city, as Kelly threatens to attack if the Gundam does not come out and fight him one-on-one. -on -one. Nina hears the threat on the radio, recognizes Kelly's voice, and takes a small vehicle out to intercept him just before the city goes on lockdown. Outside, Cole launches and tries to talk Kelly down. It only takes a moment for surprise to be replaced by resignation. Kelly hadn't known Cole to be the Gundam's pilot, but he knew they would have to face each other one day. Shots from the Gundam's beam rifle fail to penetrate the Valhalla's armor, and its own cannon melts the Gundam's shield and sends Cole diving for cover. Then the mobile armor drops what appear to be dummy shells, until they open and form an electromagnetic cage that freezes the Gundam inside it in place. Desperate to save Cole, Keith launches from the Albion and reaches the fight at the same time as Nina. Heedless of her own safety, she parks near the site and pleads with Kelly to have patience, that the change they want is coming but needs time. Kelly is unmoved, but in this brief moment of distraction, Keith fires on him. The Valhalla returns fire, missing Keith's gym cannon too, but hitting Nina's vehicle. She's thrown clear, but it's impossible to tell how badly hurt she might be. Seeing Nina's tiny, limp form bounce across the surface of the moon, Cole finally treats this fight as life and death. With a few well-placed shots, Keith destroys the weapon that held the Gundam in place, and Cole takes off to fight with everything he has. Despite the Unit 1's speed and agility, the Valhalla manages to pincer the smaller mobile suit, trapping it against the mobile armor's body. But the Gundam still has a trick or two, and Cole releases the upper body from the lower, leaving the legs trapped but the upper body free to stab a beam saber hilt deep into the enemy mobile armor. The one repair Kelly didn't have time for was the ejection system. Before he dies, he tells Cole that he has no regrets. Immediately, Cole goes to retrieve Nina and is beyond relieved to see her regain consciousness. After all this happened, he is finally able to tell her how he feels, declaring, I want you with me always. At the insistence of the Lunarians, the Albion leaves immediately for the Solomon Sea sector. Elsewhere, all of the fleets participating in Operation Stardust have gathered, and Gato laments that his friend and comrade Kelly is too late to join them. If I may pull back the curtain a little bit on my process here at MSB, 
Uh, a lot of the things that we talk about first enter my mind because I'm watching the show and something will just seem like a little weird. It'll be like, why did they spend so much time on that? Why is that in focus and not that other thing? And in this episode, that happens a couple of times. But the biggest one by far is those movie tickets that Keith gives to Cole that are shown like center screen, nice and big, all the text readable. You could see what theater they went to. It's the Apollo, which is a great <laughs> name for a theater on the moon, uh, especially because Von Braun is built around the first moon landing. You could also see what seats have been reserved for Ko and Nina, what row and what seat in the theater. They have rendered these tickets with a level of detail that was not necessary. And if they put it up there like that, clearly they want you to read it. They want you to see the title and think something about it. But it's not immediately evident what you're supposed to take away from those tickets. I don't know. My question would be, what seats did Keith get them? What does he think are great seats for a movie? They're in row S, seats 52 and 53 on the first floor, entering via gate four. That must be a massive theater. Yeah, the tickets reminded me much more of, like, theater tickets, opera tickets, yeah. than movie tickets. But Keith says they're movie tickets, and I believe him. The tickets are for November 5th, which is presumably the day that it is when these events happen which also happens to be Tomino's birthday, and I assume a reference. The show starts at 7 p.m. and the doors open at 6.30. But that introduces an interesting wrinkle into this whole Ko is too cowardly to ask Nina out storyline that I'm not entirely certain was intended, because the Albion has to leave port at 9 o'clock that night. The movie is at 7. Probably Ko couldn't have taken Nina to that movie anyway because he would have needed to be on the ship leaving. Unless they just messed up the times and dates on the tickets, I think it has to have been for the day before they were supposed to leave. But they're leaving that day. They wind up leaving that day, but were they always going to leave that day? They leave early. It's true, they do leave early, but by the time Cole has gone to Nina's office, they know what time they're leaving. But he also tells himself that he has plenty of time. Ah, see, that's. I think that's a really important line. He says that because at that point he thinks Nina's leaving on the Albion with him. Oh, so you think it's not, I have plenty of time to invite her to this movie. Yeah. You think it's, I have plenty of time to ask her out I, eventually. I think that's what's going on there. <laughs> that's why he's so then distraught when he gets back to the Albion and Nina's friend is there to pick up her luggage. And she's like, sorry, kid, you fumbled the bag and she is leaving the ship. But we'll come back to Ko's absolutely blunderous performance with the ladies later. But we started on this because I wanted to talk about the title of the movie. The movie is called Shining Blue Fire, which is also in the title of the episode, and having it referenced in two different ways in the course of this episode makes the title feel very significant to this episode, and I'm trying to figure out why. Is the Shining Blue Fire a reference to Kelly? Is it a reference to Ko? What's going on with this title? And to add another layer of complexity to it, Shining Blue Fire is a line from The Winner. It's a line from the opening when they say Aoku Kagayaku Honoe. I wonder if it's a reference to something even older, like an older song or a poem or a famous piece of literature. <laughs> like, I don't even know, but. Yeah. I could imagine all three things being references to some older work. I don't have an answer. I have to admit, I was hoping that with your powers of perception, you might have picked up on something I missed. I might just have to do various little miscellaneous pieces of research this week because that's a very interesting question and worth looking into. 
There were also a few moments in the episode where people had lines where I wasn't entirely sure what they were referring to or what they were talking about. One that stood out to me as maybe being an idiom was at the very beginning of the episode when Nina is talking up all the Gundam's new capabilities ever since its upgrades. And Cole, in the translation, says something like, oh, if I push it that hard, I wouldn't even be able to shower afterwards. (laughs) And I was like, that's a weird way of saying whatever it is you're trying to say there. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad that we're talking about the script because this episode has a new writer. The first four episodes were all written by uh, Gobu Fuyunori. The next two episodes were both written by Endo Akinori. Now, Imanishi Takashi one of the two chief directors of the show is writing the script himself. Uh Uh-huh. So if you've noticed a sort of change in the style of the dialogue, that's probably Imanishi's influence. It's certainly more direct than a lot of the stuff written by Tomino. Uh, Tomino tends to be a bit more metaphorical, mysterious. A lot of this episode is written to just lay the cards on the table, people say what they mean, but then occasionally there are lines where I'm like, what exactly are you talking about here? Another line that struck me kind of funny was when Nina's boss, the chief engineer in her department or whatever his title is, uh, says, sorry about this, but I have my own family to think about. I don't know how that's relevant to him telling Nina that the company doesn't want her to go back on the Albion. Oh, so I assumed because she asks him for time to think about it. She's also asked whether it's an order order and he's like not exactly but um it was a bit of a leap but my assumption was that if he helps her defy this order from the higher ups he could get fired i suppose that could be it i mean at the very least it conveys that both of them are like vaguely aware that anaheim as a corporate entity is up to some shady stuff and that both of them have been forced to sort of make their compromises with that because They have families to look after, they have Gundams to build, you know, the things that they want to do require them to make make an alliance, make common cause with this corporation that they don't see as entirely trustworthy. I didn't get that sense so much as that, like, being with the Gundam on the Albion is not really her job. Like, she's not really performing her job duties while she's out there. And they're basically saying, okay get your butt back in the office and do the work that we hired you to do. And she doesn't want to. (laughs) But then you have that line from the supervisor. Characters typically say, I'm sorry, but I have my own family to look after. When they're aware that they're party to some shady stuff. He does seem reluctant to make eye contact with her during the meeting. Plus, though she doesn't know it, we, the audience, can connect this scene to the prior one where Shima was complaining that Anaheim had been helping the Albion too much. We can guess that these orders are the direct result of that meddling. But to me, the scene feels like basic, totally normal office politics shady that they're aware of, not anything beyond that. I don't know. To to me, the line implies, I know that this is wrong, Uh but I have to do it anyway Yep. because of my family, Yep. which is a thing that you say when you're mixed up in something bad. Or when you work for a corporation. (laughs) An evil corporation. Or just like a normal one. We can argue about the inherent evilness of corporations some other time, but clearly we had slightly different reads on how nefarious this all was. But either way, they both know the situation is unpleasant. 
but they don't really have a way around it. This actually brings up one of the other lines that threw me a little bit uh, and ties into this very interesting glimpse we get of Nina's background, which is among the many very interesting reveals in this episode. Yeah, it's an episode loaded down with implications. But in the scene where we see her apartment in Von Braun, uh, which is rather sparse, really, not a whole lot to it, and it's all in shadow. Maybe it would look like it had more personality uh, if the lights were on. I feel as though it is a stereotype of career-driven people that they don't really bother to personalize their space or, or decorate much because they're never home. She's probably in the office until all hours, only goes home to sleep. And then she has a video call with her family uh, where her father makes the unimaginably prescient <laughs> statement if we all think back to the early days of the pandemic where he's like, oh, I hate video calls because they make you feel like you're with people and you know what's going on, but you don't really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so true. Oh, no. <laughs> right. But she has parents with connections to Anaheim. The chief at her job mentioned that he owes it to her parents to keep an eye on her, which initially makes you think maybe her parents are dead. But now it's like, oh, no, they're just friends. They, mm. they have some kind of connection. And her family lives pretty far away. I don't know where New Antwerp is, so that means nothing to me. I mean, it's mostly just name dropped here. I don't know that it ever comes up again, but I've seen at least one map that puts it near Granada, which is like on the opposite side of the moon from Von Braun. Okay. And then after rather unceremoniously hanging up on her father, she says to herself, I've messed up again. Time to quit. And I don't really get how she thinks she messed up here, like by falling for Cole. And has she come to the conclusion he's not really into her because he couldn't bring himself to ask her on a date? Or because of the work situation? Like, what exactly is she talking about that she messed up? If I had to guess, and I'm reading into this a little bit. Yeah. Perhaps Nina has put her career in jeopardy mm. by saying she wants to stay on the Albion because she's fallen for Cole. But now after this fight, she's feeling like she put the thing that was most important to her at risk for the hope of this other thing. And now it seems like that's not going to happen either. So just quit. And I don't know if she means quit love, quit work, quit both. But the next time we see her, she's like got all of her stuff packed up. She's in civilian clothes and she's planning on flying home. I assume she means quit her job as well, because if Anaheim wanted her to do R&D, they would just keep her in Von Braun at their offices. If she's told her parents she's moving home, then she must be quitting that particular Anaheim job. And this is part of why I read that prior scene as being so sinister, that her feelings about Anaheim management are so negative that Nina would actually, like, quit her job over it. One of the reasons that I, I don't quite catch up to you there is the more I went over my notes from this episode, the more I realized that she and Kelly are parallel figures in this episode. And Kelly's behavior is not about logic, it's about feelings. <laughs> A sort of a quick and dirty laying out what I mean about the two of them being so closely correlated. There was that call with her family. Nina's parents were very worried when they heard she was on this Federation ship. She seems entirely heedless of danger to her person. When she took off in the Jeep the first time the Unit 1 went out, uh, you know, just being on the Albion while they were pursuing the Unit 2, she's done a lot of things that demonstrate she's not particularly worried about her safety. 
This is Latura's fight with Kelly in a nutshell. Latura wants Kelly to live. He doesn't really care if he lives. That's of secondary or tertiary importance to him. Even more, they're back-to-back scenes where Nina is alone in the office. It's dark. She's at her computer looking at a profile of Cole, head in hand, wishing that Cole could somehow help her with this situation that feels impossible. Is she going to quit her job? How does she stay with him in the Albion? Can she even stay with him in the Albion? What should she do about her career that she's worked so hard for all this time? And then Kelly, sitting alone, in the dark, at a desk, watching a video message from Gato, someone we find out he has a very close personal connection to. He's just found out that the mobile armor he's worked so hard to fix is going to be taken away from him. Both of them have had their, like, reason for living, the thing they really care about and are passionate about and have devoted a ton of time to, taken away. They're also both blondes with fluffy hair. Sure, yeah, I guess. (laughs) And actually, that scene is cut in such a way as to imply that it's Nina watching the video message of Gato until the camera changes and you can see Kelly. Is it? Well, because it's Nina staring at the screen And I think we see Nina's screen, then we see Nina staring at a screen, then we see the screen with Gato on it. Hmm. I thought there might have been another, like, establishing shot in between to show us that we've moved to a different place. And Kelly is thinking and saying out loud to himself after watching this message, like, where is Gato? Gato told him to join this fight. Now he's having that opportunity taken away from him. Where is his friend who was supposed to help him do this? Who invited him to do it? He says, where are you, Gato? The same way that Nina says, help me, Ko. And then the real like surprise of the episode, among many, but they know each other. Yeah, on what seem like fairly intimate terms. And Nina at least knows of Gato, And it's implied she knows more about Operation Stardust than just what she's gleaned by being on the Albion. Were her family involved in Xeon? Was she? She would have been very young, but it's possible. Xeon occupied the moon during the One Year War, and the Xeon lunar headquarters was at Granada. So if New Antwerp actually is a suburb of Granada, like it seemed to be on that one map, which again, I I can't vouch for that map. I don't actually know where it comes from or how accurate it is, but given how the story has progressed so far, it seems plausible to me that New Antwerp is near Granada, was under Xeon Dominion. Nina might have met them during the occupation. She would have been 18, 19. Gato would have been only a couple of years older. I can also imagine Anaheim snapping up a bunch of former Xeon scientists. I believe that canonically they did do that. Well, who didn't? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Operation Paperclip, etc. And so if she does have some kind of family connection to Anaheim, there may be a more personal connection to Xeon beyond just having occupied the same space during the One Year War. I think Anaheim also, like, absorbed a bunch of former Xeon arms manufacturers, like Zimad and Xeonic. Her dad could have been a former executive at one of those places. And it's not merely that they sort of say each other's names in a way that acknowledges they know each other, but the way in which she talks to him hints at some level of familiarity. Don't act like those people from Earth. 
And then I think the biggest line is when she says, isn't it enough for Gato to do this? So it's not just that she knows Kelly, and it's not just that she knows Gato, but that the three of them know each other. The line that stood out to me the most was her talking about if we just have patience, that she knows theoretically some subset of the things that these people are fighting for. She knows some of the background issues that are potentially influencing them to fight. And she believes that some kind of uh, non-war progress is being made on that front, politically or socially. Uh, or she's, you know, someone who really believes in incremental change. Yeah, I mean, like many young people with good jobs and comfortable situations, she believes that things will gradually get better until all the problems are resolved. And so from her perspective, for Kelly to effectively throw his life away makes no sense. There are already other people fighting this fight, and also, I don't actually think this fight is necessary or a good idea. Please don't do this. It makes me wonder if Nina received one of those video messages from Gato. Hmm. How many of those did he send? Is she also a spy? Could be, though I think that's unlikely. I do too, but the, the hints at this extra knowledge that she has that she absolutely is not sharing. True, but I have a hard time imagining Gato suborning anyone. I have a real hard time imagining Gato convincing someone to become a spy for him. Well, but somebody suborned what's-his-face, the other Anaheim employee. Orville. Yeah, oh, Delaz would do it. Yeah. Shima would do it, but not Gato. Because Gato is stupid. Oh. I mean honorable. Poor pathetic Gato. Oh, he's such a little meow meow. No. He's, he's such a naive fool. He's, he's not a meow meow. He's a tragic figure. But his name is Gato. I know. But um, I think he and Kelly are tragic figures kind of in the mold of Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they are great people. It doesn't mean that they don't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It means they are sort of brought low by themselves that they achieve greatness and then lose everything because of their own flaws. I'm glad you brought up Shima. Is one of the things that was really compelling to me in this episode. Is was that, Shima? Well, always. But <laughs> the people Shima understands and the people Shima does not understand. Go on. Shima has this meeting with the, I'm going to assume, head of Anaheim, the president, CEO, chairman, whatever. Anaheim is all extremely compartmentalized in order to make this kind of double dealing much more, uh, much easier to get away with. Implausible deniability for the rest of the department. So I'm sure he's the director of some subsidiary of Anaheim. And they understand each other very well because they're both extremely mercenary. Their goals are very clear to each other. She can tell, ah, Anaheim would actually like to maintain the balance of power because as long as there are two sides, there are two sides to sell to. <laughs> and you make more money. Hooray, money. And it turns out that if there's only one side, then there's actually no sides to sell to. Right. It's in their interest to promote conflict. And she says that to him. She says, you think we're the ones causing trouble after he's warned her. Oh, just keep the fighting away from the moon. She says, you know, you think we're the ones causing trouble, but really it's you. <laughs> playing both sides, giving us both the equipment to kill each other. You're the one sowing chaos. And she has completely not understood Kelly. She doesn't know the first thing about him. It doesn't even occur to her that he has stolen his own mobile armor to come join her or to prove himself or something like. She thinks, oh, 
Well, having found out that we weren't going to take him along, he must have decided to go to the other side instead. Because that's what she would do. If her own side really betrayed her, she would just switch sides. What does it matter to her? (laughs) I think that line does admit of an alternate reading, which is that Shima might not actually believe what she's saying, because in that moment, she's punishing her subordinate for his impertinence and incompetence. And so she's got a plausible explanation for why she needs to deploy him in Azaku and tell him to go fight the mobile armor to his inevitable demise. But crucially for Shima, I think it's not just that she wants the mobile armor and doesn't think that Kelly is the best pilot. I think she very much wants to ensure that Kelly does not return to the Delaz fleet because Kelly is a natural ally of Gato and Shima hates Gato. And if she is sort of vying for that first lieutenant-y spot, she would want to prevent Gato from amassing supporters. So for her, the best scenario is she gets away with the mobile armor under her control. The second best scenario is no mobile armor for anybody. Because again, for her, it's not about Neo Zeon winning. It's about her winning. It does seem to have been a miscalculation on her part to send this guy to deliver the gold unsupervised because, wow, he is really bad at his job. Like, to the point where it strains credulity, taunting Kelly and cackling at him for no good reason in the middle of this hangar with no one else around. Especially because he does not then take the mobile armor immediately. Right. (laughs) If you were going to drop off the gold and then jet away in the mobile armor, okay. Kelly would have to think very fast and react very quickly to deal with that. And he probably could. We've seen him fling people across a room. Uh, But he's also pretty stunned, right? So, you know, maybe he wouldn't quite react in time. But to do all of that and then just leave the mobile armor there either very incompetent or has entirely misjudged this person. And people are are vicious and cruel and stupid all the time. This is just so vicious and cruel and stupid. I can believe it happened. Stupider things happen every day. Speaking of vicious and cruel, sending him out there against the mobile armor by himself in a single Zaku. (laughs) He was simply taking responsibility for his actions. Even if it kills him. Uh, But the gold handoff scene also stood out to me because... And there are two different interpretations of this uh, line or half line. But when Kelly receives the gold, he's surprised by how much it is. And he thinks, well, ah, it will be good that Latura has this. And he kind of trails off. It's sort of a, oh, well, at least Latura dot dot dot. And if he thinks the gold will make her feel any better, I don't think he knows her that well or it's wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. If he's merely thinking, uh, you know, without a breadwinner, without a husband, boyfriend, man in her life, this gold will sort of secure her comfort. That's true. That is simply true. Assuming she doesn't get arrested for dealing in Xeon gold. I thought the whole reason to use gold bars is because they're not very traceable. I'm pretty sure those gold bars were stamped, though. And, Mm. you know, you still have to convert them into money somehow. You melt them down and... Also, I love that in Gundam... Uh, based on just like one line from one episode of First Gundam, giving somebody a briefcase full of gold has just become like a classic Xeon thing to do. Oh yeah, somewhere they have a massive storehouse full of gold looted from Earth, I guess, or from asteroids, or I don't even know. But what that means is that if I were a jeweler or 
pawn shop? Who do you even sell a bar of gold to? Anyway, if I were that person in the Universal Century and somebody showed up with a briefcase full of gold, I would be like, ah, yes, Xeon. I'm not going to argue with you about how I would go about converting a suitcase full of ill-gotten gold without trying to draw attention to myself. No, wait, I'm curious. How much time have you spent thinking about this? Never you mind. Okay, but we're going to revisit this later. Speaking of revisiting, you were identifying the parallels between Nina and Kelly. When Nina gets her things together and gets ready to fly home, Kelly is putting on his old flight suit and preparing for this final mission. It's a beautiful scene, him in the dark, in the hangar, Latura pounding on the door, begging him not to go. It's framed gorgeously. He's right in the center, this very strong, upright figure. That's a beautiful shot. There were quite a few, I thought, really beautifully designed and animated moments in this episode. I agree completely. I don't know if it was purposeful, but there are a bunch of visual design choices that also reinforce that everyone is still kind of tied to Earth, held to Earth's gravity, connected mm. to Earth. Mm. At the end of the last episode, uh, when Cole first takes off for the Gundam test, it appears as if he's flying at Earth. At one point in the fight with Kelly, we can't see the mobile armor. It just looks as though Cole in the Gundam is firing toward Earth. And then the mobile armor appears to be flying from the direction of Earth straight towards us. Like it's all of this back and forth between the moon and Earth, visually anyway. And in the dialogue, when Nina calls attention to the contrast between them, space noids, lunarians, and those people on Earth. Again, an ambiguous line. When she says acting like those people on Earth, does she mean Earthnoids? Does she mean the Federation? Or does she mean those Xeon holdouts on Earth, still continuing the fight? I'm glad you mentioned Lunarians and Spacenoids separately, because there is a strong feeling throughout this episode that Lunarians do not consider themselves the same as other Spacenoids. They are a separate group with separate interests of their own that are not aligned with the rest of the Earth sphere. <laughs> they're not aligned with Earth, but they're also not aligned with the colonies. If you view the universal century as a metaphor for our world, especially our world over the past you know, 200, 300 years, the old world, Europe essentially, is Earth, the center of power of this imperial system. And then the colonies are the colonies spread out throughout the whole world. But Luna, the moon, is North America. It's the United States. It's one of the first colonies that then grew to be so big and populous and wealthy that it has a, a gravity and a power of its own that rivals the old world, and which sets it apart from the other colonies and in some ways allows it to dominate them. It in fact lets them become part of that like imperial and colonial system in their own right. But at the same time, they don't consider themselves the same as those old imperial colonial powers. Not an empire, not a colony, a secret third thing. <laughs> Still an empire. And this crops up throughout the episode in various mentions where they really want the Albion to leave because they don't want to be part of whatever this conflict is. They don't consider that it has anything to do with them. And this gets reinforced over and over. I think Nina might also say, oh, this has nothing to do with that. Or no, she overhears people saying. She overhears some workers just talking about the fight. And they're like, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with Lunarians. 
and in the position of Anaheim being willing to sell to both sides because as long as they don't fight on the moon, Anaheim doesn't really care. Yeah, the moon just wants to remain neutral and business friendly and make a huge profit selling to both sides. And that certainly describes the United States in some periods of its history. You talked about the framing of that shot of Kelly. There was also a really beautiful still of Von Braun City all lit up, viewed through an archway of stone that I thought was quite lovely. I really like that too. I think that's borrowed from Char's counterattack though. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> once Nina is injured in that final fight and the tone of the fight changes, once it becomes like actually life and death to Cole, the whole fight becomes much more dynamic. At the beginning of the fight, Cole is caught in these kind of repetitive cycles that change a little bit every time. It's like each time he, it's almost like a spiral. And each time the circle gets a little bigger, he grows a little more. At the beginning of his fight with Kelly, it's very like his confrontation with the recovery ship in the second episode, where he's just standing with a ship coming straight at him saying, please stop, I really don't want to shoot you. Please stop. Mm -hmm. A lot of good that did in either case. And then later in the fight, things become much more dynamic. There's a lot more motion. He's doing a lot more maneuvering. It's less of a standing still and shooting. There is also complete silence when Nina first gets thrown from that vehicle she's on. They show her sort of thrown from it, floating away from it and into the the regolith into the ground and it's silent which is extremely powerful under the circumstances and this is both a, a visual and sort of mecha design and, and story element but when the unit one separates at the waist and just like <laughs> flies off without its legs the legs are just for show that was amazing it was really really cool surprise <laughs> Although you'll notice that when he's flying around without the legs, he has to use his verniers a lot more. Yes. Because of the lack of AMBAC. In another nod to First Gundam, the weapon that he gets caught in initially is exactly like, I forget what it was called. We did a the whole research. The Adzam leader. The Adzam leader. Uh, but it's like an electromagnetic net, effectively, mm -hmm. that interferes with the functioning of the mobile suit. And basically locks it in place so that he can't do anything until Keith, the best wingman. Oh my gosh, best wingman and best wingman. Comes out and shoots the, the little emitters. The Valwalo feels like a mashup of a bunch of different first Gundam mobile armors. Like it's gotta be here in the show because you can't revive the one year war without having at least one giant scary mobile armor that then gets immediately wrecked the first time it tries to fight a Gundam. It resembles the grab row and the big row, and it's got this ability that's like the Adzam leaders. It's a pastiche of, of different mobile armors. The most unique part about it is that it kind of pincers the Gundam with its little side flappy bits. Like, I don't even know what that is or how that's supposed to work, <laughs> but it manages to trap the Gundam with it's it. It's got crab hands. It's more like crab sides? I don't know. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Now, see, the problem here is that you're going based on what you can actually see in the episode. You're trying to watch Gundam by watching Gundam instead of studying the line art online. So you see, it's got these long crab pincer hands on articulated arms, but then it tucks them against its body when it's flying, like a person putting their arms at their sides. So the pincers end up pointing backwards and look, looking like they're just part of the like side armor of the thing. 
So what you're saying is the Valhalla is Naruto running everywhere. Oh, my God. A <laughs> uh, possible little Easter egg type thing in the pan of the park, which there's no particular reason for them to show it to us, except perhaps to emphasize just how low Nina must be feeling that she's like sitting by herself in the office in the dark instead of out enjoying the city and a beautiful day. But in the foreground of that pan of the park, there's a woman in the Anaheim uniform who looks an awful lot like Chris McKenzie. Yes, indeed. She's got long red hair. She parts it in the same way. And uh, Chris had these like marks under her eyes that implied the presence of freckles. And this woman sitting in the Anaheim Park also has those same marks under the eyes. And we know Chris worked in mobile suit development. Mm -hmm. and uh... It seems like a very plausible career trajectory. And the character designer for 0083, who was also the animation director for this episode, was Kawamoto Toshihiro, who was an animation director on 0080. He's almost the only animator to cross over between the two productions, so I have to assume that this was his doing. Did you notice that at the end of the fight, after he's defeated Kelly, and when he's found Nina again, and she wakes up and he's like, Nina... I want you to come with me on the Albion. I want you to be with me always. His Gundam is kneeling yep. like he's making a marriage proposal. I was going to say, I want to be with you always is awfully zero to 100. <laughs> like, he's, <laughs> never even, he's never even asked her on a date, much less that he like cares for her. And now it's like, will you marry me? <laughs> but clearly that's what she's looking for. I have some sympathy for her reaction here because she does everything but say that she's in love with him. You know, she says, I'm working so hard on the Gundam for your sake and giggles and... She couldn't be more obvious without just outright saying it. She is extremely encouraging in every way she could be and he still can't do it. Even with his best friend being like, bro. <laughs> She is down bad. <laughs> Take these movie tickets. You Ask her to a film. Gosh, I love that. You saw us? Everyone saw. Nobody could miss the two of you flirting. And there's a very good chance that Mora has conveyed some of this to Nina. Like, oh, Keith is going to have a word with Ko. And... Yeah, I mean, just, you know, call me modern. But I feel like if she likes Ko that much, maybe she should ask him out. <laughs> You're very modern. Maybe she should just accept that this is how Cole is. I mean, I agree with you. <laughs> but I also understand that she wants something from him. She wants him to behave in a particular way. And while that may be an unreasonable expectation for this particular guy, it's not necessarily an unreasonable expectation. In general. For a partner. And maybe if she needs this and he can't give it to her, then they're not meant to be. That's okay. That happens all the time. They seemed compatible because they were the only two Gundam fanatics on the Albion, but that's not usually enough of a foundation for a whole fulfilling relationship. And she does seem to accept that. She leaves the Albion. She sends a friend to collect her things. That's what you do when you break up with somebody. Now he's just some Gundam pilot that she used to coach. And that's absolutely fair. There's nothing wrong with having particular needs or a particular communication style, realizing that it is incompatible with somebody you like and deciding to cut your losses. And everyone has sort of made this as easy for him as possible, and oh, he yeah. still can't do it. Also, 
If you, like me, are prepared to connect the dots a little bit more, it is very possible that she has put in her resignation in between the discussion with her supervisor and Ko coming into the office. Yeah. She's thinking, I have sacrificed so much just to be able to stay with you, and all I want from you right now is that you say or do one unambiguous thing to show that you actually do like me too. And then he comes in and fumbles it like this. And not even just fumbles it. Apparently one of the through lines of his character is that he is an entirely oblivious person. Just cannot get it, whatever it is. When her friend comes to the Albion to retrieve her things and blames him for her leaving, he's like, why? What reason? <laughs> he, he cannot understand why he would have anything to do with her decision to leave. <laughs> and I sympathize. When I was 13, I would have broken into cold sweats over the idea of asking a girl to the movies. I guess what I'm getting at here is that Keith is right when he says that a high schooler could have done better. Yeah, Cole learning life lessons all over the place and learning some of them the hard way. Because Keith specifically tells him, we don't know when we will have shore leave again. Effectively, you don't know when the next time you will have to take her on a date is. You have no clue. You have to seize the opportunity when it's there. And he says, oh, we have lots of time. And then immediately there's this alarm and they have to go fight. And Kelly tells him the same thing from the other direction when he says, nobody ever gets to choose the circumstances of a fight. Okay, okay. But this is another thing that aligns Cole with Gato. This episode has a post-credits scene, which is very rude of them. It's the only one so far that has had one. It comes in between the credits and the uh, next episode preview. And it shows Delaz's fleet and Gato receiving a message, presumably from Shima or from another ship that had arrived. And Gato says, Kelly, you were too late, but I'll always wait for you because I understand you better than anyone else. Clearly doesn't know that Kelly is dead. Thinks he just missed the boat, wasn't ready in time. Gato also thinks, it's fine, this is a setback, but we've always got more time. And he is exactly as wrong about that as Ko was. One thing that's probably still different about the two of them, I talked about how the fight changes once Nina is injured. Ko doesn't really treat battle as life and death until someone he knows personally is in danger. I don't know that that makes them so very different after all. Because <laughs> remember the way Gato fought with Ko in the first two episodes? Very much like, I could kill you, but you're not worth it. You're not ready to fight me yet. Come back when you're stronger. That is not the attitude of a man who approaches battle as a life and death struggle. It's very like uh, Kelly's attitude in calling out the Gundam for this single combat <laughs> duel to the yes, death. Yes. We finally get a resolution for the consequences of Ko helping Kelly to rebuild this mobile armor, and they're certainly not as bad as they could have been. He did threaten to destroy Von Braun and might have actually attacked the city. He fired that, very near it. I thought that was a bluff, probably. Probably. But had this mobile armor ended up in the hands of that other Xeon pilot, we can be pretty certain that he would have had fewer qualms. If he had spared Von Braun, it would have only been because Shima told him to, because he was more valuable to them intact. It certainly would have destroyed plenty of Federation ships and mobile suits. Yep. And possibly colonies. Do you think Shima's forces would directly attack one of the colonies? 
Oh, absolutely. I assume that at some point Neozeon will at least threaten to attack a colony, if not actually do so, to get whatever it is that they want. But instead, it ends up only destroying Kelly himself. Who either did not have time or knew from the beginning that he wanted to go down with the ship, so to speak, and did not install an escape system. Well, he came out of the one-year war regretting having survived defeat. So he went into this planning for victory or death. He built a machine to die in. And has no regrets. I wonder if Cole regrets helping him. Cole might, because I do think he respected Kelly. And he is surprised that Kelly is doing this. I don't know what he thought Kelly wanted the mobile armor for. Kelly is only very briefly surprised to be confronting Cole. And then, you know, reality hits and he thinks to himself, ah, this was bound to happen eventually. Well, they could only be friends when both of them were ex-pilots, when both of them were broken. Having been restored to their original trajectories, they are bound for this collision. I was very interested by Latora's comments to Kelly. Earlier in the episode, you know, she mentions to him, why are you doing this? You even befriended that Federation pilot. Like, you have reached across the divide and befriended someone who once upon a time you would have considered an enemy. And she also voices feelings that I think many people had in the aftermath of World War II in Germany and Japan, a sense that the people, that they had been used by their governments, that they had been manipulated and taken advantage of only to, to lose and to lose so much and so she doesn't trust them. It's all over, and she may still hate the Federation, but she's never going to trust Zeon again, or anyone calling themselves Zeon. But I think her mistake here is that Kelly has not displayed any particular antipathy towards the Federation as an organization or the people who are in it. He was fine with helping Ko. And anyway, the show has kind of implied that the moon is really its own thing. The Federation only has nominal authority over the moon and Von Braun and Anaheim. To the extent he is, because of his disability or because of his past, discriminated against or oppressed, it is by Lunarian systems. Latura is, of course, very right that they are lying to him and taking advantage of him. And I think the episode suggests that Gato is being manipulated and exploited in the same ways that Kelly is. They are very similar. They are. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that Gato's message to Kelly was insincere or that he himself had any notion of this plot to take the Valwalo away from Kelly. For Gato, this fight, this rebellion, Operation Stardust, is about the feelings of the soldiers. It was about regaining that sense of honor. And it doesn't matter what the outcome of it is. What matters is getting the band back together doing it properly, having one good final fight, and vindicating their honor. Delaz has not shown his hand about what he actually plans to do or to get out of this, and the show self-consciously keeps calling attention to that. We keep having characters saying, what is Delaz up to? Everything they've been doing has just been a blind. What is the real plot? But I don't think there's any reason to believe that Delaz cares one bit for the feelings and the honor of all of these ex-soldiers, except as a lever with which he can move them. Delaz and Shima have a lot more in common with each other than Delaz and Gato. While we are talking about types of people, 
there was another line from Cole that highlights his uh, obliviousness to what people mean when they say things, but also brings up uh, an important issue. When Synapse is telling them all to get ready to leave, that the Lunarians don't want them there, uh, and that they shouldn't blame them, you know, they live very different lives. My interpretation was that Synapse was saying, like, well, they're civilians, we are in the military, we signed up to be in danger, they don't want their home in danger, so we need to go. Cole, entirely missing that, is like, no, Nina's not like that, Nina and I are the same. I was like, yes, you're both obsessed with the Gundam. (laughs) Gundams are your love language. (laughs) But in a way, it's as if he doesn't entirely see himself as a soldier and he doesn't entirely see her as a civilian. That tracks. Which fits with so many other things about him. Well, his uh, frequent confusion about having enemies. And of course, he did meet her on a military base. They have hung out on this warship. It would be quite natural for him to see her as part of the crew. Now, before we finish today, we have to talk about Keith. Gotta talk about Keith. <laughs> I love Keith so much. Keith is the best. The reveal that he and Mora are dating. Tom can tell you, when I first saw it, I was squealing with surprise and happiness. Gleeful. I was so, so happy. <laughs> It does come as a surprise, but not out of nowhere. We have seen them getting progressively closer on the edges of the more dramatic Ko and Nina relationship. I can just imagine how after their very awkward first encounter, where he is chatting up Nina to distract her so Cole can look at the Gundam and Mora (laughs) taps him on the shoulder and says, oh, I'll go out with you. That sounds great. I can actually imagine Keith later being like, you know what? Yeah, (laughs) let's go out. (laughs) Let's go have that beer. And obviously, I think Mora is great, and so anybody who would want to date her must have excellent taste, and is not at all put off by the fact that she is taller than him, even when she's wearing flats. She's like a head taller than him in flats. It's a lot. But she's so much shorter than him when he's in his gym. (laughs) That's fair. And they are uh, awfully cozy with one another. In addition to trying to look after Cole in Cole's personal life. He also looks after Cole on the battlefield. He is desperate to go out there and help once they see that Cole is caught. And he doesn't seem scared at all. Not not in the way he was so frightened in his first couple battles, right? The first couple times they go out, he's like laughing hysterically. He looks like he wants to throw up. Like he has an awful time. But now his best friend is in danger and he's got to go help him. And I'll be real, after having watched Top Gun, I was really afraid Keith was going to die in this episode. I was like, oh no, is this it? Is Is this this his goose moment? Yeah. And he didn't, but I'm going to be waiting for it the whole rest of the season, so there's that. Especially now that he has a girlfriend. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Death flags all over the place. And now Nina's research on a couple of topics, including the title of the episode and that weird thing Ko says about whether or not he'll be able to shower. When it comes to the title of this episode, which is also a line from the opening song, I have a couple of theories, but nothing truly solid. The title is Aoku Kagayaku Hono De, translated as With Shining Blue Fire. In the song, this is followed by Kono Kanashimyo, or This Sadness. 
In a literal sense, the title could refer to the trails behind the mobile suit and mobile armor engines and veneers, which look like fire and are almost always a very pale, blue-toned white, and sometimes appear more blue. The glow effect around them is the same color, so shining blue fire. And the crackling electricity from the Adzam leader-like weapon that the Valwalo deploys is a similar shade, so it could also be in reference to that. More figuratively, in the intro sequence, there is a split-screen moment with Gato and Cole, where the background for Gato is red and the background for Cole is blue. If blue is associated with Cole, maybe he is the shining blue fire. But the title could also have a double meaning. Japanese has a few different kanji for ao or blue, and the one used here is not the most common one. It's used in different words, often formal or literary terms, and can have a slightly different meaning, the main difference being that the kanji used here is for pale blue, gray, and inexperienced, in the same way that in English we might describe someone as green. Kagayaku, or to shine, sparkle, twinkle, glitter, or glisten, can also mean to light up with happiness, hope, etc., to beam, like when we say someone is beaming, and we mean they are radiating happiness. And finally, the word used for fire here is hono, which can also mean flame or blaze, but it is frequently used figuratively to describe passion or flames of intense emotion, such as love, jealousy, or anger. So the line could also mean something like shining, inexperienced love, which sounds awfully appropriate for this episode. I also searched for other songs, books, movies, any media that might share the title in whole or in part that the title might be a reference to. I found several songs and a novel with the title Aoki Hono, or variations thereof, like Ao no Hono or Aoi Hono, but all of them released long after 0083. With the more commonly used kanji for blue, there is a seinen manga, manga aimed at young adult men, Aoki Hono by Yanagisawa Kimio, which ran from 1988 to 1991 and had a single episode OVA released in 1989. I couldn't find a full plot synopsis, but the short one from Anime News Network's encyclopedia is Ryuichi is a high school student tired of living in a small town with small people. He's determined to claw his way to the top of Tokyo, and he'll use any woman he can to do it. And Mangapedia describes it as a picaresque story about the bubble economy and the social conditions of the time. It doesn't sound as though it's related to 0083. The possibly more relevant manga that I found is also called Aoki Hono, but uses the same character for Ao as the title of the episode. It's by Ishikawa Saburo and ran from 1989 until 1994. It's a seinen manga set in the Meiji period, about two men born into very different circumstances but leading parallel lives. One is born into wealth and one is born poor, but both are the eldest son in their family, born on the same day and at the same time. They both decide to become artists at the same time. Both travel to Tokyo to pursue their studies, although the wealthy one goes to Tokyo School of Fine Arts, while the poor one apprentices to a painter, doing housework in exchange for meals, lodging, and tuition. Both find that their art doesn't fit in with prevailing tastes in the Tokyo art world, and so both travel overseas, wandering from place to place and job to job, 
while continuing to practice and refine their art. This feels like a possible reference in that there are plenty of pairs of characters in the episode who could be said to have parallel lives. In particular, I wonder about Gato and Kelly, but since I didn't find any other connection between this Aoki Hono manga and Gundam or the Stardust Memory production, I think that the dual meaning I laid out is the most likely. Moving on to my next mini-research. After Cole returns from the latest round of tests for the Gundam Unit 1, Nina tells him, quote, Just 160? This machine can now go all the way to 230. I tried to figure out what possible units she could be talking about, speed or power or what, but I'm really not sure. Although while searching, I did learn that the flutter Cole mentions during the tests is probably a reference to the fact that the wings of some planes, for example, the F-16, flutter at certain airspeeds. Cole responds to Nina, saying something about how his body couldn't handle 230-whatevers, and he wouldn't even be able to shower after, which sounded odd to Tom and I, so I set out to make sense of it. First, I checked that there wasn't some other way to interpret the original Japanese, but I think it's quite clear. <laughs> First, he says, if I did that, this body couldn't handle it. Check. Then, For one thing, I would regrettably become unable even to shower. Double check. Second step was to look for any relevant idioms, which turned up nothing. But during steps one and two, I spent a lot of time thinking. And one point that popped to mind is that he does specify shower, shawa, rather than bathe, like ofuro ni hairu. In a lot of Japanese bathrooms, even though one cleans oneself before getting into the bath, there's usually a low stool to sit on while you do so, and there's a spigot for water and a small bucket or other container to pour the water over yourself, and or one of those shower heads that's on a handle with a hose, typically mounted fairly low on the wall. But they wouldn't describe that as shawa, Shawa is what many of us think of as a shower, standing under a running shower head. Which led me to the likeliest answer, which I'm sure those of you who are pilots thought was obvious from the get-go. He literally means that if he had pushed the Gundam that hard, he would be too injured or exhausted to stand for the 5-10 to 10 minutes required to take a shower. Because it turns out that flying a fighter jet is extremely physically taxing. I read a few accounts from different pilots describing the effects on the body and what they do to counteract them. For a point of contrast, one of them mentioned that the most G-force non-pilots are likely to experience is 3 to 4 Gs on a roller coaster doing a loop, which is enough to push your head back and pin your arms down. Many modern jets reach up to 9 Gs, enough to make the pilot's body feel as though it weighs over 2,000 pounds. Blood is forced from the head and upper body down into the extremities. Dangerous, because this can lead to G-lock, or G-loss of consciousness. And at those speeds, the plane would crash before the pilot woke up. So, they perform something called AGSM, or Anti-G Straining Maneuver. This involves squeezing the leg and ab muscles to force blood back up the body, and making short, sharp breaths to maintain pressure in the lungs. This also affects their vision. As anyone who has fainted knows, when there's not enough blood in your head, you get tunnel vision. The periphery gets hazy and dark, and the area that you can see clearly gets smaller and smaller. Vision is pretty critical in a dogfight, 
and the anti-G-straining maneuver prevents some, but not all, peripheral vision loss. Keeping that up during maneuvers or during a dogfight is extremely physically taxing, so strength and conditioning become that much more important. One of the articles I read was titled, An F-35 Pilot Reveals Why Good Fighter Pilots Never Skip Leg Day. Sidebar that what boggles my mind is that doing this AGSM must become instinctive, because otherwise, how on earth can a person remember to do all that while they are in the middle of a dogfight? These pilots also wear G-suits, which include special pants with air bladders in them that inflate, squeezing the legs to prevent blood rushing down to their feet. One of the accounts I read mentioned that on top of the physical strain, flying at high Gs usually causes bruising in the extremities, especially the legs, and that lots of pilots wind up with prematurely aged spines from the accumulative strain over time. Another talked about ferrying passengers to and fro on flights of just one to two hours, and that passengers unused to it routinely need to be helped out of the cockpit at their destination. They cannot get out under their own steam. So whatever unit Nina is referring to, increasing it would have put considerable extra strain on the pilot, which is to say, coal. Even if he's exaggerating the likely effects for modesty, it's still a more than 40% increase, something that would take a lot of getting used to. The son of wealthy, well-connected American and British parents, John Gillespie McGee Jr. received an expensive education and had been offered a scholarship to Yale University. He was popular and gregarious. He wanted to be a poet. His parents were missionaries, and when his father thought he was partying a little too hard, McGee said, My generation does not expect to live long, and we want to enjoy ourselves while we may. The provost of his secondary school described him as almost a pacifist before he decided to become a pilot to help protect his friends in Britain. He went on to join the Royal Canadian Air Force in 1940 at the age of 18. A talented pilot, he finished his training uncommonly quickly, was given the rank of pilot officer, and then assigned to the number 412 Fighter Squadron in the UK, part of the Digby Wing, under the command of legendary Canadian fighter ace Cowboy Blatchford. There, he flew convoy patrols, faced Luftwaffe fighters in a sortie over Lille, and died in his 10th week of active service in a training accident when his Spitfire collided with another plane and he was unable to eject in time. He was 19. McGee wrote many poems, including one I wish I could read here but that remains under copyright, Per Ardua, a meditation on how the souls of all those dead young soldiers must be held in a kind of limbo, a dark night, a silent Valhalla, until the far dawn of victory comes. But his most famous poem is in the public domain. Many of you already know it. It is the official poem of the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Royal Air Force. Fourth-class cadets in the United States Air Force Academy are required to recite it from memory. It is inscribed on the back of the memorial for the Space Shuttle Challenger, and appears, in part or in full, on numerous headstones at Arlington National Cemetery, a national military cemetery in the United States. We've talked enough about the cloud of anger and desperation over Kelly and his actions, the anguish and the resignation, but I imagine something deeper, something older, something in the core of him that spoke to something in the core of Cole, 
a kindred feeling reaching across all of their differences, uniting them in perfect understanding. It is the source of Cole's empathy. It is the reason they work on the mobile armor together. It is the reason neither can truly give up being a pilot, and it was there to the end. Who better to put words to that feeling than another pilot? What better poem for Kelly's memorial than one that speaks to the hearts and souls of pilots and astronauts across borders and across time? So without further preamble and with apologies for one small change I've made to the original text, this is the sonnet High Flight by John Gillespie McGee, Jr. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter-silvered wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you have not dreamed of, wheeled and soared and swung high in the starlit silence. Hovering there, I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up the long, delirious, burning blue, I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace, where never lark nor ever eagle flew. And while with silent, lifting mind I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. next time on episode 8.8, this message is a warning about danger. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 8, and know the winners in this fight. Last week's research proves timely. Shima, more like schema, am I right? Eh? 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 One last job before retirement. Corruption in the military? Our bodies, ourselves. Intensive carrot training. Mail time, mail time, mail time. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me wanna wag my tail. When it comes, I wanna wail Shima, tell them that they set you up. <laughs> A bunch of men who think they know what women want. Cupid Gundam. Up the silliness factor 110%, but maintain current levels of tragedy. And end of lecture. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. 
The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week was submitted by Calder, and it's that Ko needs to stop listening to Magic by Jacob Wheeler. Everything in his life and on the Albion would be going a lot more smoothly if he were looking for a love affair. may have talked about this briefly before this even started, but Stardust Memories is a Woody Allen movie. Yes, it is. The The reason I haven't really brought it up is that I don't know that there's any juice in that lemon. Yeah, and there may not be, and I don't have any particular interest in talking about Woody Allen. Yeah, so. <laughs> I like, I've never seen the film. I, I haven't seen many Woody Allen films, period, but I haven't seen that one. And as far as I could tell from reading like summaries of the plot, I can't identify any like nothing any stood out as like oh yeah. then probably not worth talking about and i want to say it references like a jazz tune that's that more goes likely. back even further that's yeah much that's more that's the one to look at yeah i'm gonna make a note <laughs> i shall make a note <laughs> was that from one of our D campaigns um yes Yes, that was a thing I used to say <laughs> in D and D a lot. One of your characters, rather. Uh, no, that was that was me, the DM. Oh. That was that was always like, <laughs> oh well, I, I'll make a note of that. Of that weird thing you did. Uh huh. That you thought wouldn't have any any <laughs> consequences. <laughs> I shall make a note. Okay, I thought you had wanted to talk about the name of the movie. I I do. Weird. We just got distracted. Okay. Well. <laughs> Before I start talking about a whole bunch of other stuff, then maybe you should talk about the name of the movie. What did I say? (laughs) Probably can't put that in, even though it's funny. (laughs) And in this episode, that's really the... And then... of the comments that I want to make in response I feel like shouldn't go into the podcast so (laughs) I have to have somebody here to give me an awesome secret friends handshake when I finish (laughs) bang Some of you are going to get that and be horrified. Some of you are going to get that and be delighted. And some of you are just going to be confused. 